Welcome to episode 13 in the second season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. Any casual observer of the corporate media over the last week will have noticed that Canada is not faring well on the COVID front line. Apparently, cases are skyrocketing in provinces like Ontario and British Columbia, and health authorities are enforcing strict lockdown measures again and upping penalties for rule breakers. Though they won't admit it, this seems like an admission that what they've been doing isn't working. Also, we found out that Canada's death rate in long-term care homes due to COVID is the highest among first world nations. We'll get into all this. But first, John, I want to open with a question. It's a trick question. Here it is. What is your Steve Buick update for this week? I sent an email to Stephen Buick just yesterday asking again, and I've been asking since January, what is the Alberta government's science on uh, believing that healthy asymptomatic people are significant spreaders of the COVID virus? And I asked the question because our science, which we will be putting forward in court, suggests that uh, unless you're sick, in which case you should stay home and not interact with other people. But if you're asymptomatic, you are not a significant spreader of the virus. And if our side is correct on the science, that means that the lockdown measures like social distancing and capacity limits and mask wearing and, and everything else, uh, most of the lockdown measures are predicated on the government's belief that asymptomatic people are significant spreaders. So we're, we're into uh, pretty soon we'll be at three months of no response from the Alberta government to this uh, question. Stephen Buick being my contact person, he's the spokesperson for Alberta's health minister, Tyler Shandro. Why is this a trick question? Oh, I'm glad you asked that, John. <laughs> it's a trick question because you sent me an email about, uh, well, actually from the Western Standard Online that was publicizing a debate challenge that's been issued by a group uh, called the Alberta Medical Emergency Management Team. And they've challenged the provincial government, Jason Kenney and uh, Tyler Shandro, uh, the health minister and chief medical officer, Dina Hinshaw, to a debate, public debate about the current restrictions. And in your email that you forwarded to me, you had responded to them, the person that had sent it to you, that this was really good news and such a great idea. And the reason it's a trick question is because if uh, Stephen Buick isn't bothering to reply to you, my guess is there's nothing to be gained politically by doing it. My guess is that there's nothing to be gained politically by the government accepting this challenge and the challenge uh, from people like Dr. Dennis Modry and uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Redman and uh, Dr. Roger Hodge Hodgkinson, uh, Hod et cetera. Sorry? Hodkinson. I think there's no oh. there's no G in it. Hodkinson. Oh, sorry. Yes. Oh, Hodkinson. Yes. Okay. Uh, and who's is there a fourth person on that panel? Uh, yes, actually, we're retired police officer, David Dixon. Okay. As well. Okay, so they, 
there, there seems to me, like I said, there's nothing in it for them to respond to this. It would be a great debate because I, uh, let's cut to the chase. Let's talk about exactly why we're doing what we're doing. What do you guys, how will you explain it? We will challenge it and then, you know, we'll hash it out. This is actually, you know, kind of how science works, right? You know, like here's your evidence. We challenge the evidence, you know, that kind of thing. And we get to a solution, Eventually, I don't think it's going to happen. Although it's a great idea, you were right. It is a great idea. So, but I—that's I, why I tricked you into giving me the update early. Well, I'm just—I'm just astounded, flabbergasted, and and even hurt and wounded that you would assert that the Alberta <laughs> government would be operating politically. You said there's nothing in it for them politically. I mean, how dare you? Don't you understand that these people are motivated solely by love for truth and, and everything is evidence-based public policy? That's what we've been hearing for 12 and a half months. And now you're suggesting that they would make a political decision to not debate Dr. Roger Hodkinson and Dr. Dennis Modry and uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel, not sure if I got his title correct, uh, David Redman and, uh, and, and Mr. David Dixon. You're, you're saying that they would make a political decision and they wouldn't just, you know, for love of science, for love of truth, uh, actually seize this opportunity to put these idiots in their place, right? Because what we've been hearing for the last 12 months is, you know, anybody who questions lockdowns, it's because you're, you're unscientific, you're anti-science, you don't look at the evidence and, you know, kind of, you're not really all that bright. You're probably conspiratorial. And uh, all of this stuff. I mean, isn't this a great opportunity for the Alberta government to really put these idiots in their place? And now we turn off the sarcasm meter. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I felt you were attacking me to attack them, John. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Okay, John. Yes, I am. Actually, there was an article that I failed to send you that I found really interesting last week, and I will dig it up. And it was about how all the public health officers across Canada are really, you know, battling political interference from the uh, various political offices across the land. And, you know, is trying to paint these public health officers as just trying to do the right thing, you know, battling all these politicians. Well, anyways. Politicians uh, love it. They, they might whine about it occasionally, but they can flip-flop from phone call to phone call. And so if if an elected representative is hearing from, from one constituent who is saying, I hate the lockdowns, uh, they're causing far more harm than good. Uh, this is a futile quest trying to stop a virus by way of locking down the entire healthy population. It's never been tried before in human history. There's no track record of success so on and so forth. And then the elected politician can say, ah, but we're following the best possible medical and scientific advice. So they have a nice cop-out. And I think that uh, politicians love that. If they had to pass all these uh, health orders in the legislature, uh, it'd, be, it'd be a different story because all it would take would be for one Roman Babber, uh, Randy Hillier, uh, and there's there's one or two others names escape me. You, you know, all you need is is a few poli- even just one or two or three people in the legislature that start to add, that force a debate by asking tough questions. Mm-hmm. Then you've got what it's supposed to be in democracy. What we have now is a medical dictatorship, which is a severe departure from democracy. Because even though public health acts give 
public health officers the, the power to force sick people into quarantine, which I don't have a problem with. I don't know how many people are really against that. But what's happening instead is they're making broad laws of general application saying that, you know, nobody can have their mother over for Christmas dinner and all the children in school must wear masks and businesses must be destroyed and so on and so forth. They're they're acting like the, le- the elected legislature and none of this is subject to any debate. It's a disgrace. But this gets back to, you know, do politicians, I think they kind of like this. Um, there's some politicians are actually, they quite love the fact that we've got unelected, unaccountable judges making huge public policy decisions about everything from, you know, safe injection drug sites to abortion, to immigration, to you name it. You've got judges making huge policy decisions and politicians might, you know, depending on who they're talking to on, on a, at a given moment, they, they might complain about it, but really they love it because it's like, Hey, the, the court has ruled. So, sorry, my hands are tied. Actually, yeah, you went into the area that I was preparing to go into, so I'm kind of left without words here, you know, except to say that in that last discussion, uh, our previous show, you, we talked about what the judge had said in BC about Bonnie Henry and that she had the awesome responsibility. Awesome, yeah. dude. Awesome, yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's still, it's big responsibility, and it lies at her doorstep. Mm. You know, so that is, he's saying she is the decision maker. So if there is any praise or blame to take the responsibility, it has to go to her. Now, I would say, generally, you're on the side of attacking the politicians, and I'm more on the side of attacking the public health officers I'm not sure if that's a fair assessment or not, but I think that's where we are right now uh, between the two of us. And so I'm I'm more apt to uh, look at the awesome responsibility of Adina Hinshaw than I am at uh, uh, Jason Kenney. However, you know, one hires the other. So, yeah, I don't I don't think it's a huge distinction. I mean, the uh, what, what the chief medical officers are killing people with their policies by inflicting this uh, isolation and um, loneliness onto so many people and just killing so much joy and treating us as though we are merely clumps of cells seeking to live as long as possible and paying no regard whatsoever for our minds, our spirits, and our souls. That's what these policies are like. It's just the simple joys of being able to connect with people in person and there's psychological, there's a, a column I wrote a few months ago with a whole bunch of links to it as to, you know, there are, there is, there is medical and scientific evidence to the effect that we do need in-person contact and it is harmful to our health to be forced to carry on our relationships through a, only a two-dimensional computer screen. It's actually harmful to our health. And I think these chief medical officers of health or in British Columbia, provincial health officer, Really, their their title should be, instead of Chief Provincial Health Officer, it should be Chief Provincial Officer of Fighting COVID to the Exclusion of Everything Else. Or in Alberta, the Chief Medical Officer of Health should really be the Chief Medical Officer of Fighting COVID and to Hell with Everything Else. Or the Chief Medical Officer of Fighting COVID and... Um, Can we change that to the... 
chief medical officer with the awesome responsibility of fighting COVID. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean the the and and the World Health Organization, from which uh, I know in Alberta, I've seen emails to the effect where you know when you say what's what's your authority, what's your whatever, you get a short reply back saying we follow the World Health Organization. So okay, well, nice of you to abdicate your thinking to them, but. The World Health Organization, if you do want to follow them, their definition, uh, I don't have it in front of me. I googled it very easily last night. World Health Organization definition of health and bang, it, it, it leads you right to the page. And health is defined as the physical, mental, emotional well-being. Health is not narrowly limited to not dying of COVID. Mm-hmm. So the chief medical officers are disregarding the World Health Organization, because if you look at it through a holistic lens, which not only the World Health Organization is suggesting that, but I've I've heard that from many doctors, right? Health is more than just, you know, uh, only making sure that your feet are in good shape, right? It's like your, yeah. your arms and legs and heart and lungs matter as well. You can't fixate on, on one thing only. There might be one thing that's acting up more than others, and that's what brings you in to see the doctor. But, you know, doctors will ask you, you know, are, are you getting vitamin D to keep your immune system strong? And are, are you exercising regularly? Are you finding good ways to get rid of stress? Because being living with a, in, in a continual state of high stress for weeks, months, years is, is going to be bad for your health and increase the chance of getting a stroke or a heart attack, et cetera, et cetera. It's a holistic thing. And so these chief medical officers are fixated narrowly on uh, trying to ensure that people do not die of COVID. And of course, we now know after 12 months, uh, and this is not my opinion, but just going with the government data, that the 70 in Alberta is, I think, representative of other jurisdictions, 75% of people dying with COVID have three or more serious health conditions like cancer, heart disease, emphysema, and so on. So they're not, you know, maybe they're delaying death by two, four, six, eight, 10, 12 months. Okay, fine. And should we try to do that? Yes, we should. We should try to delay death. But it's sick and twisted and perverse to disregard all of health and then fixate on trying to get one demographic that is threatened by COVID, 90% of the population is not threatened by COVID, to fixate on one demographic and try to delay death there to the harm of, of all health of all people. Again, right. so it's a worthwhile goal, right? But it needs to be, uh, it, it's this just total lack of holistic, you know, taking the broad view. It, it's uh, it's disregarding the forest and looking at two or three trees and disregarding thousands of other trees. Right, yeah. You would almost think you're making a contradiction there, but what you're saying is that we should follow something like the Great Barrington Declaration, which said we should focus on protecting the vulnerable yeah. and allowing the other people to continue on with their lives. Because as you've pointed out before, politicians have said, well, you can't protect the vulnerable in nursing homes. You have to lock down all of society to do it. That's the only way to do it. I mean, so that's, I just want to make that clarification right there. Now, in in that fixation, though, of all the articles that I sent you this week, the point that I was trying to make was that we seem to be going into a heavier lockdown phase again. And this, especially in Ontario and British Columbia, 
Uh, they're they're bringing in new restrictions. I think BC's going back to uh, not allowing in-person dining or anything like that. It seems like we're failing in our lockdown restrictions, but uh, the focus that we're on doesn't seem to be working. And there was another article that you know Canada has the worst uh, long-term care deaths uh, deaths in long-term care homes out of all westernized or first-world nations. So. And again, we're expected we're expected to believe that if we'd had no lockdowns, the death numbers would be so much higher. Well, evidently, the the COVID did get into the nursing homes. Obviously, we've got roughly eighty percent of deaths, eighty uh, percent of people dying with COVID, and again, not necessarily of COVID per se, but eighty percent of people dying with COVID were in nursing homes. So we failed miserably to keep COVID out of the nursing homes. And yet, somehow, we're asked to believe that if we had not had lockdowns, so many more people would have died. Where are these so many more people that would have died? COVID got into the nursing homes. So anybody in the nursing homes that was going to die has died. And the people that survived, survived. So you can't really have more deaths in nursing homes, or if we could, it would be because of better protocols inside the nursing homes, and we have nothing to do with lockdowns in in all of society. Conversely, outside of the nursing homes, unless you've got a rare pre-existing health condition, uh, of which could be several kinds, in which case you're threatened by all kinds of things, not just COVID, mm-hmm. you're you're safe. Uh, it's harmless to ninety percent of the population. So, how possibly could it be true? that without lockdowns, we would have had so many more people die without the lockdowns. Well, I would say not within the nursing homes and not outside of the nursing homes. Yeah, I just I just found the headline from the, uh, the story that I was referring to regarding Ontario. Uh, this is from March 29, CBC. The headline is, new data shows COVID-19 pandemic now completely out of control in Ontario. <laughs> Key scientific advisor says. Oh, key scientific okay. advisor. Yeah, some uh, somebody exercising public sector privilege who uh, is not living on two thousand dollars a month and is a cheerleader for for uh, for the government. No doubt. Uh, possibly, yeah, but uh, it seems to me that you know you you either got this thing under control with lockdowns, or the lockdowns are failing miserably. And if you look at that, take that sentence at face value, and look at what the guy is saying. I would say the lockdowns are failing. You know, there are other jurisdictions where they did very little lockdowns. Uh, in fact, there's a story out of the uh, out of Fee from March 26th. Uh, that is, uh, Sweden saw a lower mortality rate than most of Europe in 2020, despite no lockdowns. New data from Europe suggests Sweden's laissez-faire approach to the pandemic was far from catastrophic. Okay, so and let me let, let me read a small passage from that. Okay, Pr- preliminary data from EU statistics agency Eurostat, compiled by Reuters, showed Sweden had seven point seven percent more deaths in twenty twenty than its average for the preceding four years. Countries that opted for several periods of strict lockdowns, such as Spain and Belgium, had so called excess mortality of eighteen percent and sixteen percent respectively. So there you have it. So Sweden has got, uh, I'm just rounding to the nearest percentage. So Sweden's got 8% uh, more deaths in 2020 compared to preceding years. 
Okay, so that's the number of deaths. It's not like 8% of the population died, right? We're talking about the the deaths in the country. So deaths in Sweden went up 8%. Although some of that is uh, caused by the fact that they had an unusually lower death rate in 2019, right? And typically, uh, a very large portion of your deaths is elderly people in nursing homes that have serious pre-existing medical conditions. That's where disproportionately a lot of your deaths occur. Sweden had a great year in 2019 with uh, fewer people than average uh, dying compared to previous years. Anyway, okay, so Sweden's got an 8% increase in uh, in the death rate. Spain's got an 18% and Belgium 16%. So there you've got these lockdown countries and, and their deaths are soaring. And then globally, I'm quoting again from the report, 21 of the 30 countries with available statistics had higher excess mortality than Sweden. Okay, so Sweden's in uh, Sweden's eighth place amongst 30 countries. So uh, there you have it. There's no, and we've seen this previously with the chart, right, showing death rates versus lockdowns juxtaposed on, on a chart, okay? XY, yeah. On an XY chart. And so, and, what, and you've got a dot for each country. And these dots are in all four quadrants. They're all over the place. There's zero correlation. So you have, you have countries with severe strict lockdowns that have low death rates. Okay, yes. Uh, countries with severe strict lockdowns and high death rates. <laughs> and then right. you've got countries with no lockdowns or minimal lockdowns with high death rates. And countries with minimal lockdowns, no lockdowns, and low death rates. So these the, the the dots of countries are just in in all four quadrants. There is no correlation between severe lockdown and and mortality or low lockdown and mortality. There's just no uh, there, there's no compelling evidence. And we can say this now after twelve months, the experiment has failed. The fear mongering for twelve months is false. Twelve months ago, you could have you know still bought or you could have reasonably bought into, you know, let's try this experiment of locking down the entire population because it might work and it might save lives. That would have been a reasonable thing to try 12 months ago, but now we're 12 months later. And I think your CBC headline is just, it's just bang on. Ontario is under pretty severe lockdown compared to Alberta. Uh, Maybe there's other places in the world that are, well, Quebec has got a curfew and Atlantic Canada seems to be you know, the most uh, authoritarian of all, uh, from what I've heard. But you've got the lock, you've got lockdown Ontario, and then you've got, you know, some leading scientist saying that COVID is is out of control. Okay, Mm -hmm. what? So the lockdowns are not working, are they? Well, there was an article in CBC as well. I don't, I didn't included in the uh, articles I sent you, but I I did manage to pull it up just before we started talking here. And that was another CBC article touting the Atlantic provinces as a fine example of how lockdowns work because they were under strict lockdown and they managed to keep the, the spread low. So. Yeah. But the economic damage there is going to be less than in other places because pre lockdown you've got Atlantic Canada is is heavily subsidized by oh, wow. transfer payments and so you have you have lots of people there exercising their public sector privilege and there isn't as much of a private sector to destroy so your your impact there right because these lockdown measures are viciously ruthlessly aggressively targeting and discriminating against private sector people and small businesses. Mm. They are leaving untouched the Walmarts and superstores. 
uh, because they can just get away with keeping their clothing and jewelry and, and everything can be open because they sell groceries, right? Mm-hmm. So you got the local jewelry shop is getting bankrupted because people will buy their jewelry at Walmart. So you get back to, you know, public sector privilege. Uh, these people are not living on $2,000 a month that I'm talking Policemen, teachers, firefighters, politicians, university professors, social workers, federal government employees, municipal government employees, provincial government employees. You got public sector privilege. You have pension privilege. If you're a pensioner, you're still getting the same uh, paycheck. And then you've got computer screen privilege. If you are a uh, a lawyer, an accountant, or some other job where you can get 100% of it done from behind a computer screen, chances are you're not hurting financially. If the chief medical officers of health, we are not really thinking of health, they're only thinking about one virus. If they had, actually chief medical officer wouldn't have been able to do this, would have needed the legislature. If all of the Canadian premiers, uh, along with lockdowns, had said, oh yeah, we got this short uh, two-week lockdown to flatten the curve, and by the way, all the teachers and the university professors and, and all the politicians, everybody's going to live on $2,000 a month. How long would lockdowns have lasted? A week? Two weeks? You would have had... The, union, know, the, unions would have, the unions would have brought all their members out. You would have had you know, a rally. You would have had the biggest rallies in Alberta history, or at least on par with the rallies in the, uh, the mid-1990s when, when Ralph Klein cut the size of the Alberta government by 30% and you had some big rallies. You you would have the biggest rallies in decades with every public sector person at the legislature demanding an immediate end to lockdowns if lockdowns meant that the public sector people all had to live on $2,000 a month like all the private sector people that were forced into unemployment. Yes, they would be visually large because everybody would be six feet apart this time. Oh yes, so. and yeah, everybody would be six feet apart. So yeah, I guess, right. I guess the 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 legislature rally would would take up half of the city of Edmonton or something with everybody dutifully. Although we've seen though with the Black Lives Matter anti racism protests that uh, you know some people are not that fixated on social distancing. That's true, and I. But that's that, okay uh, because COVID is a political virus, and it knows that it is not to spread when it's an anti-racism rally. But if it's an anti-lockdown rally, then COVID, right, COVID gets right. very gets very, very vicious and aggressive. And so we got to issue $1,000 tickets to the anti-lockdown protesters, but not to the anti-racism protesters. Very important. It's scientific. Do not do not question the science. <laughs> okay. You got that in. Fine. <laughs> All right. Anyways, the, uh, the topic that I had brought up, you know, are we failing uh, in Canada? Is it, you know, are we failing with the lockdowns or are we exaggerating our failings in order to fan the flames of panic in the pandemic? I mean, that's the thing, you know, with, with uh, you know, Ontario failing, British Columbia failing, Alberta always fails because the mainstream media hates Alberta. <laughs> I, I'm not being paranoid there. And, you know, uh, they're now getting around to talking about how we are looking so bad in the eyes of the world because of our long-term care deaths as well you know are we fanning the flames of our our failure or are we actually failing at this lockdown business that's what i'm i'm wondering you know some canadian failure lauren Lauren gunter had an interesting column uh within the past week about how canada is uh 162nd in the world uh we're behind uh angola which is 
pretty poor. Uh, we're still ahead of Kazakhstan, uh, but we're something like a. D- correct me if it's not 162nd, but we're we're way down at the bottom when it comes to vaccines. Uh, the yeah, vaccine that was vaccine distribution. Failure. Yeah, and the United States is uh, is vac- The rate of vaccination is ten times as high as in Canada. Note the rate. I mean, if the United mm-hmm. States was was vaccinating ten times as many people, okay, that would be they have roughly ten times our population. No, no, right. the rate of vaccination is uh, so for every Canadian getting the jab, there's 100 Americans getting the jab. Right, so their rate of, of vaccination is ten times as high as uh, as ours. So if I was somebody who you know believed, based on fear mongering, not based on facts, that COVID is something that that we should all be afraid of, that warrants t- making a huge effort to combat to the exclusion of everything else. If I was one of those people, I'd be very upset with the federal government for its failure to get the vaccine out. But then we got these vaccine problems. AstraZeneca, I heard, is now going to be, uh, it's being pulled in different places because, oh, oh my, the supposedly safe vaccine. By the way, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I had all my four kids vaccinated. I'm glad I got my vaccines as a baby against, you know, polio, this, that, and the other thing. So I'm not an anti-vaxxer. But to me, it's just plain common sense that anything that's not been subjected to uh, long-term testing should not blithely be referred to as, quote, safe, quote, Right. And I'm not I'm not fear-mongering, I'm not paranoid, I'm not saying they're dangerous. I'm just saying you can't say they're safe when you don't know what the long-term consequences are. Because we've got all kinds of uh incidents in, in history of vaccines, medications, medical treatments where the bad effects do not manifest themselves until months or years later. Okay, fine, but then you know, Canada's failure might be a good thing then. Then maybe the failure is a good thing if we're not getting the vaccines in because now uh, the vaccines, oh, golly gee, well, they're not safe after all because they cause uh, blood clotting or something. All right, John, are you working on any new cases uh, lately? The the lockdown cases. Lockdown cases. We are as busy as ever. We have not filed any new challenges in the past week. So we've got the uh, the BC decision. We're contemplating an appeal uh, because the trial judge did not look at the evidence and just accepted as absolute truth any documents put into court by the uh, BC provincial government and didn't even look at the evidence that we had submitted. So that's likely to go to an appeal. Our uh, Alberta court action, we're looking forward to cross-examining the chief medical officer, Dina Henshaw, at the trial coming up on uh, May 3rd. That should be extremely interesting. Uh, Saskatchewan's still working on uh, preparing for filing the challenge. And the holdup has been, frankly, it's just been understaffing. Get the lawyers are so busy with so many cases uh, that it, it just takes longer to, to get get all the evidence lined up in the affidavits and the pleadings and the legal research and everything else. Manitoba, we're looking forward to trial coming up uh, in late April. And in Ontario, we have court actions on behalf of churches that are defending against uh, government court actions to shut them down. And then federally, we have court hearing coming up in April on uh, Trudeau's dirty and dangerous prison hotels. Uh, So there's going to be uh, a hearing of an injunction application there. and But no new court cases filed in the past week. Okay. 
We are, however, working on a new paper that we're aiming to release in April. And the topic, we don't have a title yet, but the topic is going to be along the lines of why we do not need to live in fear of COVID-19. And I want to mention, I'll give you give you a sneak preview or, or highlights already. Um, some, of this, some of the data here is just fascinating. We've got Canada's population in mid-2020 was 38 million. We had uh, 573,000 people testing positive on a PCR test. So that's not testing positive for COVID because the PCR test does not diagnose COVID. And it, uh, of those 572, of those 573,000 people, it's not, you know, get maybe one, two, three percent of those were actually sick with symptoms, right? That's an important mm-hmm. point to immunize yourself against the fear mongering right. media when they tell you there's a thousand new cases. Just take three percent of that and you're going to be looking at the number of, of people that are actually sick. So percentage of total Canadian population testing positive on a PCR test is 1.5%. Uh, okay, so the sick people would be 3% of 1.5%. Number of Canadians dying with COVID in 2020 is 15,472. Uh, number of people dying in Canada is just shy of 300,000. So what we've now, and then we then we look at the uh, data for a bad Flu season, uh, 2017-2018, population is a little bit lower, 36.7 million instead of 38 million. Number of deaths recorded, 8,511. And it's influenza slash pneumonia because the two are closely related. Percentage of the population who died of flu pneumonia in 2017 is... 0.02%. So this is 2% of 2%. Okay. So in 2017, the flu left 99.98% of the population alive. We had 2% of 1%, right? So 0.02% of the population died of the flu. What's the COVID percentage? 0.04%. So 4% of Now, if you want to make this really scary, you can say COVID is twice as deadly as the annual flu. And that would be true. Doubled. In fact, uh, because the 2017 year was a bad year for the flu, you'd probably be correct to say COVID is three times as deadly as the annual flu, you know, maybe four or five times. But here's the thing. It all matters on how you put it. And I had one doctor tell me, he said, look, if you told seniors in nursing homes or seniors outside of nursing homes or people with serious health conditions, if you told them, look, the, the annual flu is coming around and your chance of getting the annual flu and dying of it is about 1%. There's a 99% chance either you won't get sick of it or you will get sick with the flu, but you won't die. So your chance of dying of the annual flu for you know elderly people with serious health conditions was let's say 1%, okay? Mm-hmm. Does that strike fear into the heart of a 70-year-old, 80-year-old, 90-year-old? Well, of course not. Uh, with few exceptions, people in that age category, they know that they're closer to death. They know that they're vulnerable. So if you tell seniors, you know what? Like there's a 1% chance that you're going to catch the annual flu and die of it. 
you're not going to create a lot of fear or panic in that demographic, nor will you create fear or panic in another demo in, in their uh, sons and daughters and grandchildren, the rest of the population. Nobody is going to be scared of the annual flu when you have 1% of vulnerable people dying of it. Now with COVID, Instead of the uh, instead of what you would tell the seniors during your typical flu season, saying there's a one percent chance you'll catch the flu and die, with COVID, it's like you now have a five percent chance or a four percent chance of catching COVID and dying. You still have a ninety five percent, ninety six percent chance of not getting sick with COVID or getting sick with COVID but not dying. Okay. Now, if you explain it that way, and if you say, look you've got a 95% chance of not dying of COVID. And this is for the vulnerable category. Again, this is not for the general population. So if you're in the vulnerable category, you have a 95% chance of not dying of COVID. You have a 5% chance of catching it and dying it. Now, that might cause people to behave a little bit differently than if it's 1%. But is that really scary that your chance of surviving goes from 99% down to 95%? Is that enough to put the whole population into a state of fear and panic? And I would suggest, no, it's not. However, you can convey the same truth in a very different way and say, truthfully, your chance of dying of COVID is five times as high as the annual flu. Ah, booga, booga, booga. That's what's been happening in the last 12 months. People say, oh yeah, you know, the data tells us that your chance of dying of COVID for for the 10% of the people that are vulnerable, your chance of dying of COVID is five times as high as the annual flu. Okay, well, yes, that's true. What's also true is your chance of not dying has gone from 99% down to 95%. Is this something worth destroying our economy over and uh, forcing people into unemployment, poverty, misery, suicide, drug overdoses, massive mental health harms, loneliness, isolation, etc. That's the one there that I was going to say. If you give those old people the choice and you say, well, and now you can't see your relatives anymore either. I mean, that's got to hit hard. And uh, I'm sure that uh, the 5% uh, probably wouldn't dissuade them at all from uh, wanting to see their relatives if they were asked, but they're not being asked. So, And I don't think the BC Provincial Health Officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, is very uh, calm, safe, or kind. That's the title of her new book, Be, be Kind, Be Calm, Be Safe. It's, it's, not, it's not kind to uh, push seniors in nursing homes into a form of solitary confinement where they're not allowed to have any interactions with their own loved ones. And this is not to denigrate the good staff at these nursing homes who do the best they can. But what really makes the difference for a person in a nursing home is the regular visits from their husband, wife, son, daughter, niece, nephew, uh, grandchildren, friends, etc., etc., who are providing that love and care and attention and affection and support. And you've got these, you know, kind and caring, supposedly kind and caring chief medical officers that shut down these senior homes and say, well, too bad. And here I get back to, you know, they view us as clumps of cells that have no soul, no mind and no spirit, as if our our only purpose, our sole objective as a clump of cells is to live as long as possible. And even there, the science doesn't back that up. Because if you want your physical body to live as long as possible, it's not good to be uh, locked up in 
a form of solitary confinement and to be denied uh, all contact, uh, like a prisoner in prison, like Pastor Coates for for uh, a month and six days, to, to be denied all contact with your friends and family is not good for your physical health either. So even there, it, on a scientific standard, it, it, it falls completely short uh, of anything intelligent. Uh, and, and these seniors in nursing homes deserve to have a choice to say, you know what, I'd rather see my family and risk getting COVID than to uh, be locked up for months on end uh, just, just, just to avoid the possibility of me getting COVID. They should be offered that choice. And I would venture a guess that the vast majority of those people would say, hey, I'd rather see my family and risk uh, getting COVID. And then people say, oh, but we can't, you know, we, we just don't have the money to rebuild these nursing homes because you got four people to a room, uh, certainly mm. in most Ontario homes and other places, to which I say that would cost a tiny fraction of the amount of new debt that we are incurring hundreds of billions of dollars federally. And then if on top of that, you add in all the provincial debt in the in, in the 10 provinces, another hundreds of billions of dollars more in debt, you could build brand new nursing homes with uh, every senior having their own separate suite <laughs> yeah. you, for yeah. a fraction of the new debt that we've incurring. And that new debt doesn't even cause, that doesn't even include the destruction to the economy. That's just new government mm. debt is hundreds of billions. If you want to add economic destruction, you've got hundreds of billions more Okay, so I mean the total economic cost. If you add up the the uh, federal government debt, provincial government debt, and the economic destruction, uh, you could be towards a trillion uh, mm. dollars. Which which for a country of only thirty eight million people is pretty scary. I mean right. a trillion's not as much in the U.S. They have ten times our population, but mm. a trillion dollars for uh, for Canadians in in economic damage plus government debt, you could have built brand new nursing homes for a fraction of that. Right. Yeah. What I, I'm glad you got to that because one of the contradictions that I sense in the things that we're talking about is that we support things like the Great Barrington Declaration, but we've never really talked about what the solution would be to protecting the people in the long-term care homes. And that apparently is one of the goals of the Great Barrington Declaration and obviously one of the failures of Canada as well, if we are to accept this uh, this new report that shows Canada in such a very bad light worst among uh, Western nations in terms of uh, deaths in long-term care homes. I don't know how uh, that would compare to a place that's received a lot of publicity like New York, but uh, certainly not boding well. This, uh, this report you guys are working on, uh, it's tentatively, it's focusing on why we shouldn't be afraid. Let me just get that straight. Why we shouldn't be afraid of the current pandemic. Okay, is that generally, are there any other focuses in there or is that the main focus? Anything that you could tell us at this point, I guess. We're going to go through uh, how many of Canada's COVID dead already had a life-threatening illness, and that's uh, a lot, 90%. I want to make it clear, again, that we should do everything we can to preserve life and to extend life. So I'm not suggesting that just because somebody is 85 and they're already dying of, of cancer and lung disease and heart disease and this, that, and the other thing that we just say, okay, well, let's, let's give them, let's give them some COVID and be done with it. That's not the point. The point is, of course, you try to protect those people from, from COVID, but you take reasonable measures, right? Mm -hmm. We're supposed to be 
we do that in economics and law and medicine. We're supposed to be reasonable. I suggest it's not reasonable to destroy businesses, destroy livelihoods, and inflict massive harm on an entire population in a futile effort. And here's the point, it's futile. We haven't kept, the, the lockdowns haven't kept COVID out of the nursing homes. The COVID's getting into the nursing homes. It has gotten into it. Uh, unless and until we find ways to keep COVID out of nursing homes, what will happen is the COVID will get in there. And then people that are already in their last 12 months of life for their last six months or four months or eight months of life, they're going to die uh, two months or four months or six months or 12 months sooner than what they would have otherwise. Should we try to prevent that? Yes, we should. We should try to prevent people from dying two months sooner than what they would have uh, died otherwise. We should make reasonable efforts, but it's not reasonable to inflict so much harm on so many people. And so we go through some of the demographic statistics you know, 50, 54% of people dying with COVID are, are 85 years or older. So the, what's the point? The point is that COVID has, COVID has minimal impact on population life expectancy, which is something relevant to think about. You know, how much, you, know, you never save any lives. All you're doing is delaying death. We're all going to die. So when you look at different medicines and different cures and different illnesses, the question is, years of life lost. If there's some, you know, whether it's cancer, whether it's car accidents, whether it's suicides, you have to look at years of life lost is a more intelligent and more scientific way, as opposed to just this slogan of, quote, saving lives, quote, because you don't save lives, we're all going to die. So the real issue you should be looking at is for an illness or for a cause of death, Right? Suicide and car accidents are not illnesses, but they are causes of death. So when you're looking at causes of death, because we're not saving any lives, but we are, uh, you have to look at the impact on life expectancy. So how many years of life are lost with the typical, I don't know what Canada's is, 85 for, for women, 81 for men or wherever it's at, somewhere around there. Women live longer on average. So if we have an average lifespan of 85, if you want to see how lethal car accidents and suicides and various kinds of cancer and the annual flu and COVID and this, that, and the other thing, you have to look at how many years of life lost because of this cause of death. And when you, and that is a rational, intelligent, fair, and reasonable way to look at things because even though the saving lives slogan, I'm not saying we, we need to stop, you know, looking at that, right? Like if I pull you out of a, burning building, you know, and you can say, John, you saved my life. Thank you. I'm I'm not going to correct you and start to lecture you about years of life lost and this and that. So it's fine to use that as, as, a, as a colloquial expression in daily speech. We could talk about number of lives that are saved. Okay, that's fine. I'm sure we've talked that way for thousands of years. We'll keep on talking that way. But if you want to practice medicine, you have to look at years of life lost by a particular cause of death. And when you look at COVID through that lens, the impact of COVID vis-a-vis -vis years of life lost is minimal. Mm -hmm. And as, as we find out more about lockdown harms, we're going to get more data on years of life lost through the lockdowns. Yeah. One of the things that uh, maybe we should uh, end or we're working towards the end of the show here. Uh, we should talk a little bit about the kids because mm. there's been a couple of stories have popped up 
regarding that as well, especially now that they're talking about these various variants attacking the younger population, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there was a story that uh, you had sent me regarding a group up in northern Alberta that was uh, asking – they were protesting the provincial uh, authorities. And as you read the CBC story, you discovered it was a Mennonite community because <laughs> that wasn't mentioned near the top. They are uh, – they're pulling their kids. I think 55 out of 85 kids have been pulled out of a classroom. You said – see that story? Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a, I guess, statement on the part of uh, that group. They are, uh, but you know, here's the thing. I mean, there there was another story that I had sent you that was about another isolated community down in the United States, the Amish, and apparently, you know, speaking of herd immunity, the Amish have achieved herd immunity by by uh, you know, just not really taking any lockdown measures. Uh, as well, so I mean, like, it seems to me that it could and be people are upset. Hit. People are upset that they did this without vaccinations, but I think the Amish mm. quite quite sensibly recognized that we don't live forever, and uh, COVID does not have a huge impact on population life expectancy. It does shorten lives, mm. and I would venture a guess that the number of people in the Amish community dying of COVID would have been like the demographics everywhere else. It would have been. Uh, older people with serious health conditions who are already close to death and COVID shortens their life by uh, X number of months. And, and yeah, you, we always have outliers, you know, you do hear about a you know, you might hear about a 30 year old that, that died of COVID that had serious preexisting health conditions, but, but then you're getting into the, you know, uh, something that's a lower death rate than say, you know, car accidents or, you know, COVID deaths among children, you're into the territory of uh, children dying by lightning strikes, right? It, it's just down to 0. 0.000000, how many zeros of uh, percent of, of kids dying of lightning strike or, or kids dying of COVID. Mm-hmm. So I think the Amish just recognized you deal with the virus and it's uh, it's not a threat to... Ninety percent of the community. Mm-hmm. What about this Alberta story? You figure that they're on the right track there. Uh, that, that kind of protest. I mean, they're bring at least they're bringing attention to the subject. That's for sure. Well, I've been. I've never been. Uh, you know, huge big admirer of of uh, the quality of education in in public schools. That's just a personal belief. So I I, I never think it's a huge loss when kids get. Uh, you know, get pulled out of Fair public enough. school for a week or two. I know uh, kids at a one of the Calgary high schools has a self-directed learning system where you work your way through Alberta curriculum at your own pace. And there's a good number of kids. They're, they're getting their whole school year is, is completed by February. They don't even need until June if you just apply yourself and, and work hard. So, uh, but it's tragic to force kids to live in a state of fear all the time by forcing them to wear masks in schools. I think it's child abuse because it uh, creates unnecessary fear in kids and it pushes the false media narrative uh, onto the kids that uh, they should be afraid, that everybody should be afraid. It is not scientific because it's based on uh, the government's belief that asymptomatic people are spreaders. We also know after 12 months, uh, first of all, kids are not threatened by COVID. Kids don't spread COVID. And uh, <laughs> I think the, the media headline was, you know, kids are having mild symptoms of it. Well, yeah, that's because, 
you know, kids don't die from it. If they do get it, I mean, at worst, they get some mild symptoms. I mean, what's wrong with that? You know, they're helping, yeah, actually, they're helping towards, they're helping towards the, uh, the herd immunity, uh, which in the long run is the only thing that can really help us. Yeah, I think you might have been, or at least you obliquely referred to the story uh, from Vancouver Island that uh, the headline was somewhat scary. A global news headline from March 29th, significant number of exposures at schools in the weeks to come, Island Health Issues Warning. Okay, so they want everybody to wear a mask. They want to up the protection. It contains this this paragraph. It, uh, meaning the health authority, is urging parents to get children tested, even if they are showing mild symptoms, as children will often only have mild coronavirus (laughs) illnesses. In other words, kids are getting the flu, everybody's freaking out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I mean, kids don't get the severe symptoms. And then to go in for a useless PCR test. I know somebody personally who tested positive on on a PCR test that was perfectly healthy without any symptoms in the the weeks leading up to that test and in the the weeks uh, weeks and months in fact prior to the test and the weeks and months after the test got a positive PCR test it's meaningless it does not mm. diagnose covid and uh, it, it's just a waste of it's a waste of time money effort and energy to have asymptomatic people tested uh, mm-hmm. What we should do is if you have real symptoms and you're sick and you're going into hospital or you need to go into hospital, then give people a real COVID test. Because if you're actually sick, they don't use the PCR test. They right. use the real gold standard and to determine if you actually have COVID or not, because the PCR test does not diagnose COVID. So right. it's part of the fear mongering. Yeah. And this, this fear mongering seems targeted directly at children here. I'm not sure what the uh, point of it is if they uh, only show mild symptoms and they acknowledge that children often have mild coronavirus illness. Okay. You know, how many, how many kids can understand that a a PCR test is false, especially when children are, are conditioned. And I think appropriately as a starting point, children are conditioned to obey authority. Right. Right. You know, as you get older, you can kind of learn nuances and authorities are sometimes wrong, this and that. Right. But as a starting point, most parents are raising their kids. You know, you respect adults, you respect your teachers, you respect the police officers, you respect your nurses, your doctors, so on and so forth. So if you've got the authorities that are telling kids to wear masks and and forcing kids to, to get COVID tests, you know, it's hard it's next to impossible. How do you explain to these kids? Well, you know, uh, PCR tests are not scientific and mask. The authorities are all wrong because uh, there's no there's no valid medical or scientific reason for children to be wearing masks, either in schools or in their ballet lessons or their martial arts classes or anything else. Um, the children can't be liberated by the truth of the facts. And so they're just subjected to fear all the time. And I think forcing kids to get a stupid PCR test is just as abusive as forcing them to wear masks and telling them that if they get within six feet of another person, that they're going to end up killing their grandmother, all of which is lies and falsehoods. And I think what we're doing to the children now is child abuse. 
Yeah, well, especially that we're now <clears throat> getting more evidence that the mask mandates don't work. I noted a story uh, that was publicized in Breitbart that was about Texas. Texas got rid of their mask mandate, and their cases are dropping, actually, after they have done this. So uh, that's interesting. I don't know if there's a correlation there or not, but... Uh, and just to play devil's advocate, if, if Texas is, is using these PCR tests then you could actually argue that uh, not wearing the masks, ha- we don't even know what the impact is. But here's the mm. thing, though, for, for, for the for the pro-lockdown people, if they believe in mask wearing as useful and effective and necessary, and if they believe in the PCR tests, well, if you put those two articles of faith together, why have we seen in uh, so many jurisdictions that after the mask wearing mandate comes in and you got everybody wearing the mask, uh, and then the case numbers go up. Why is that? I mean, obviously, mm. obviously, there's no science either to the mask wearing or to the PCR tests. Uh, because right. if you believe in both, you're in a quandary now. We got people wearing masks, and the case numbers are rising. Why is that? Now they might say, "Oh, well, it's because of the uh, because of flu seasons up and downs, right? We see the death rates drop in uh, April, May, June, July, August. We see the death numbers go down. Well, that." Welcome to my side. That's the waves of the um, flu season uh, as well. We don't have mm-hmm. a lot of people dying of the flu in May, June, July, August, September. It's more into the October to March window that you've got more people dying of viruses. Right. Well, speaking of more, I don't know whether you notice this, at least in the Canadian coverage, they aren't talking about excess deaths. Mm. They're using this term excess deaths. And I think it might refer to the fact that, uh, you know, like you guys had found out uh, when you did that uh, study uh, where it showed that there weren't really any excess deaths, <laughs> at least recognizing it now by saying these are actually sort of in addition to our normal deaths. It might be something that you guys want to look into, see how they're jigging the stats that way. I didn't – I just sort of picked up on it incidentally in the coverage as I was looking at everything else. But uh, it might be a topic for another show. So, uh, speaking of another show, let's talk about ending this one, John. <laughs> I think we can call an end to the episode 13 of Justice with John Carpe. Looking forward to another week. Talk to you later, John. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kevin. Have a good week. <laughs> <laughs>